Our postmodern world really hates this line of questioning, but we don't apologize to ask the question again and again. Where are you headed? To what final destination is your life journey taking you? And where are you finding guidance for that journey? Guidance from outside of you. A sort of GPS for your soul and its life. A few weeks ago in the introduction to our series through the narrative portions of the book of Numbers, I invoked the line of Tolkien that says, Not all those who wander are lost. Not all those who wander are lost, but... I think we must say that most certainly are. Many live their lives with no direction. They live their lives with no sense of ultimate purpose. They don't have a destination in view. There's no guidance system for their lives. They're just making life out to be whatever they hope it could be. And to follow whatever desires press them in whatever direction. A long, long time ago I found this passage in Lewis Carroll's children's book, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. And it illustrates the point so very well. I've used it in a lot of different settings, but I think it fits here again so well today. Would you tell me, please, which way I ought to go from here? Alice asks Cheshire Cat. That depends a good deal on where you want to go, said the cat. I don't much care where, said Alice. Then it doesn't matter which way you go, said the cat. So long as I get somewhere, Alice added as an exclamation. Oh, you're sure to do that, said the cat, if you only walk long enough. That's our world. Right there. That's so many people lost in this world. Anxious to get somewhere. Anxious to travel life's journey. Utterly no sense of where they're going. No direction. No destination. No purpose. Just wandering aimlessly. And I wonder then about you. Where are you? Are you an aimless wanderer? Not sure where you're going. Not sure how to get there. Not sure why you're even ultimately traveling. If you find the humility to admit it, I commend you. And I encourage you to stay tuned. We welcome you into that, this life. But for those of us who have come to know Christ as our Savior... What a wonder it is to stop here and say, this is not us. We are not wandering to nowhere. We're not anxiously on a road that leads nowhere. We never wander hopelessly. We know where we are going, we know how to get there, and we are under the guidance of the One who can assure us of the promised end to which He's called us. What is more, we can rejoice in the knowledge that the Lord leads us on the journey, and He never leads us to nothing. In fact, He is never up to nothing. God is always up to something. He's up to something big. It's often subtle, undiscernible to our senses, often slow, taxing our patience. But God is always leading His people somewhere good, and He's up to something big. Always. We meet these realities in Numbers chapters 9 and 10. Remember, about a year earlier, God has delivered Israel from Egyptian slavery. They have journeyed through the Red Sea. And God has descended on the Mount Sinai, giving there His law to Moses, giving instructions for the tabernacle, this tent, where God's presence will dwell among His people, and then ultimately that glory descending the mountain and settling in that tabernacle. God's presence shrouded in a cloud. We have no idea what it looks like. 
These aren't photographs from that time. There was no such thing, of course. But as people try to imagine what this may have looked like, here's one idea. A lot of the pictures you'll see this kind of thin column of smoke. They might be more inspired by a campfire than they know with that. Others have imagined that perhaps it shrouded the nation from the sun and the heat as they traveled through the wilderness. Perhaps it spread out something along these lines. We don't know, but again, a cloud of some sort. Or maybe there's some things in our natural world, such as this graphic, that might somewhat approximate what the cloud looked like, although not swirling in this destructive way, but guiding God's people over God's people. God's presence shrouded in this cloud. We're not sure what it looked like, but at This At the foot of Mount Sinai, we find then the book of Leviticus and the pinnacle book of the Pentateuch that establishes the ritual worship of Yahweh. The Levitical priesthood is chosen. The holiness codes and the uncleanness laws are enacted. And they're they're almost as a visual demonstration of the innate sinfulness of humanity. Every area, every corner of their life constantly reminded of indwelling sin and the necessity for cleansing and forgiveness in the presence of a holy God who is separated from the people in His holiness so that He not consume them and so that they not taint Him. Hidden in this cloud, over this tabernacle, with His people willingly, and yet this problem. They sinners, He perfectly holy. All of this has been established as we then come to the book of Numbers. And we have the journey from Sinai northward to the land that God has promised four centuries earlier to Israel. The book will play out in these three basic regions of the earth, and end up at Moab across the Jordan, across from the promised land. And much will take place between here and there. But as we pick up the narrative again at 9.15, I encourage you to consider how chapters 9 and 10 are a story about God's people, but are so related to the story of our lives. In so many ways, the parallels are quite clear. It's a different world, a different calling, but the same God who works uniquely in our lives along these very same lines. Notice that as we work through, and I'll try to draw such parallels out as we look at the history of the nation of Israel chosen by God. The first segment that we read here in chapter 9 is following God's presence wherever He leads. This is Israel's experience. Notice it there in verse 15 again, on the day that the tabernacle was set up, The cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. And at evening it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. So God's presence with His people as the tabernacle is erected. We're returning here to Exodus chapter 40. And we have this sizable, thick cloud that veiled the brilliance of God's presence in the midst of the encamped nation of Israel. And again, we don't know precisely how this looked, but the cloud by day and then the appearance of fire by night. And I find in the graphics that we find uh, online to maybe just get a sense of what this might have looked like, they usually look like a gas can has just been lighted. It, It wasn't fire. It was the same cloud. But it's really hard to find a graphic that pictures that. The cloud veiled the brilliance of God, and at night then it glowed from within. It made it look almost like fire rising. It wasn't literally fire, but something of this effect providing some light through the night. And in a day without electricity, this could be helpful, particularly. But never a question that God's presence was with His people, however that looked, by day and by night. And then as Israel journeys out, that cloud leading them, whatever, however we would imagine it, we see it leading them through the wilderness. Why a cloud? Why a cloud? 
Without the protection of the cloud, God's presence would melt His people. Or it would at least blind them forever. There is no one that can look upon the glory of God unaided and not be harmed. Take the glory of every champion of any sport in history. Take the majesty of every king and conquering general. Take the glory of every empire that has ruled in power. Pile all that glory together. And it does not even touch the glory of God. His glory is great. And it is so great that when it takes on visible presence among His people, it is a brilliance that no one can even see. We have a great and glorious God. And Israel saw this. His glory, His fame, His power, His wisdom is so majestic that He lives and dwells in inapproachable light as we have sung this morning. So the cloud shielded that brilliance to protect God's people from God. If that's, never, if that's a thought that's never crossed your mind, grab it. We must be protected from God. There is no doubt that God protects His people. There is no doubt that God is a loving Father. There is no doubt that His grace is poured out upon His people, but never forget, He's not a small God. He's no wimpy God that just answers our prayers like we want Him to. He's a God of such glory and brilliance that we can't even ultimately see Him. We must be protected from Him because of that holiness and brilliance. And Israel can see that in a very visible way. But the stress here falls on God's presence, not only in His holiness and distinctiveness, but His presence among His people on the journey. As He had promised to Abraham centuries earlier, He would bring Israel into this land. Verse 17 of chapter 9. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that the people of Israel set out. Note that word. They set out. They break camp. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. So at the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out. And at the command of the Lord, they camped. Enough said. Points made. Notice the emphasis. We cannot miss this, thinks Moses. And God as he conveys this truth to Moses, as he continues. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. Verse 19, Even when the cloud continued over the tabernacle many days, and the people of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was a few days over the tabernacle, and according to the command of the Lord, they remained in camp. Then according to the command of the Lord, they set out. And sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning, and when the cloud lifted in the morning, they set out. Or if it continued for a day and a night when the cloud lifted, what do you guess? They set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a longer time that the cloud continued over the tabernacle, abiding there, the people of Israel remained in camp and did not set out. But when it lifted, they set out. And the, at the command of the Lord they camped and at the command of the Lord they set out. We get it. We noticed again the repetition. Israel must journey when and where God leads her. God does not solicit self-expressive individualism here. This is not a situation of a democratic meeting where they determine where they're going to go next as moves them at the moment. Israel's not encouraged then to go with what their gut tells them or even with what the majority decide. When the presence of God in the cloud moves, Israel is to move with it and with Him. When the presence of the Lord rests, 
the nation is to stay put always. It really doesn't matter how long they want to stay there, how soon they want to go. It matters where God is leading. That is all important to the people of God. Where is God taking me? I go there. Israel's joy does not hinge on doing their own thing, inventing their own methods, or figuring life out on terms of their own making. Oh, how hard for us to grasp that. But it is so with us. They were to wander the earth in obedience to the command of the Lord and in the fellowship of His presence. And for Israel's part, verse 23, the second half, they kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by Moses. They did what God commanded them to do. And brothers and sisters, it is no difference, it is no different for us who are in Christ. Of course, we don't follow a pillared cloud by day and by night. That was a period of salvation history where God distinctively purposefully led Israel that way that we might watch and learn. But on this side of the cross, it's very different. We don't follow a literal pillar of cloud by day and night. But let's draw aside an 11-year-old Israeli girl who's journeying on this northward mission to the promised land and ask her, how do you live your life? What is it made up of? How do you go about day-to-day living here as an Israelite 11-year-old girl? And she would say something perhaps like this. As God's people, it is our call to follow the Lord wherever He leads. When He goes forward, we go with Him. When He stays, we stay with Him. Our job is to obey God and to walk in His presence wherever He leads. Not a bad way of looking at our lives, is it? As the followers of Christ. We're in the same type of journey. Our joy is not found in our doing our own thing in our own way. In venturing out on our own and getting innovative and determining truth for ourselves or inventing a direction for my life the way that I want it to go. That's not our calling in life as God's people. The orientation of our lives is to obey Christ and journey each day in fellowship with Him. He's demonstrating that for us here. Just as He demonstrated through the sacrificial system, there must be the shedding of blood for the atonement of sin. And again and again and again, He illustrates that for us in the life of Israel. And here, day after day after day, He illustrates for us the walk of the believer. In the fellowship and presence of Christ, I follow Him. That is a radical reorientation to the way sin wants us to live. To do your own thing, find your own way, live the way that you choose to live. I hope you've been transformed by this reorientation. It is definitely distinctive. The orientation of our lives is now to obey Christ and to journey each day in fellowship with Him. How? To read His Word in order to know His truth. An intake of the Word of God to know where God's leading, to know what He is saying. To pray and seek His will. To edify one another on the journey of faith. And thankfully then, we never wander aimlessly. We are led every step of the way by the presence of the Spirit, by the wisdom of God's objective, external, revealed truth. That truth lights our path. It directs our every day. It directs what we love and how we live out our lives. So friend, if your identity has not been converted to one of spiritual union with Jesus Christ, you are indeed wandering You're wandering with nowhere good to go. You're wandering where you know not. Your soul aches with a God-shaped vacuum. 
and the echoing emptiness and the longing for something other refuses to be silenced. There are wandering souls that cannot find their way. If that is you, there is such good news. This passage indeed is pointing us forward to God's revelation where we find in, for instance, John chapter 1 that Jesus came and if we would translate it this way, it would be strange to our ears, but it's really an accurate translation that Jesus came and tabernacled among us. You can't miss the connection there to the book of Numbers, Leviticus, Exodus. He, he tabernacled among us. He tented among us. He came in among us when He took on flesh as the second person of the triune God and lived out His life here. He tented among us. And what was His message? Follow Me. Taking on flesh, God came to dwell among us and Jesus says, go where I take you. Follow Me as a disciple. He is essentially saying as He is teaching, then dying and rising from the dead and ascending into heaven and pouring out His Spirit, proving everything that He had taught. Jesus is saying, I'm the new tabernacle. I am, in a sense, the place, so to speak, where you meet God on His terms for your salvation from every enemy of your soul, including yourself. I'm that new tabernacle. I am that place of meeting. Jesus essentially says, as Israel followed the glory cloud to the promised land, follow me to abundant life and eternal blessing. Go with me on this journey. This is no fanciful interpretation forcing Jesus here into this text. I don't think. It is precisely the message the Spirit intends for us to grasp from this narrative. To follow God. To follow now Christ. But the problem is not seeing the connection. The problem is the rebellion in our hearts. We stay tuned for Israel's journey. But second segment now of this text in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 10 is heeding God's call, whatever the message. The creation and use of the trump of trumpets we find in verses 1 and 2 the lord spoke to moses saying make two silver trumpets of hammered work you shall make them and you shall use them for summoning the congregation and for breaking camp this is not the shofar that we are familiar with and is often sounded in the text of scripture somewhere the ram's horn uh, it's different. It, these, these are silver trumpets. And we have the, the picture here that you're looking at are, uh, is, a, is a trumpet found in King Tut's tomb, somewhat in the region, uh, time-wise. And so we would think perhaps looked something along these lines. It would have been uh, heated silver, then formed around a, a form, and these trumpets would have sounded a very different sound than the shofar. And we have directions given this way as to what that would be. But there were, you see here in verse 2, there's two uses. The one is to gather at the tabernacle of meeting. And secondly, to break camp and journey toward the promised land. The distinct message that we find here of the trumpets, there's the long blast and there's the alarm. However that sounded, whatever distinction was there, would have been very clear to Israel. This is the long blast gathering us, to gather, gathering us at the tent of meeting. Or the alarm, which is a call to move out, which is really a call to war, ultimately. It's going to take a long time for them to get up to the promised land, but it's really a call to war. We're going to break camp and move together toward the promised land. We remember that Israel marches as an army. Chapter 1, there was a census of the warriors, and they go together, men, women, and children, the young and the old, but also the warriors among uh, Israel, all journeying together to that promised land. Now on that note, God assures Moses of the ultimate success of this endeavor at verse, uh, as we continue on. 
So when both are blown, let me just read the text, verse 3. When both are blown, all the congregation shall gather themselves to you at the entrance of the tent of meeting. There's the gathering. But if they blow only one, the chiefs, the heads of the tribes of Israel, shall gather themselves. When you blow an alarm in distinction, the camps that are on the east side shall set out. And when you blow an alarm, the second time the camps that are on the south side shall set out. An alarm is to be blown whenever they are to set out, and I would assume a third alarm and a fourth alarm. But when the assembly is to be gathered together, not leave, but gather, you shall blow a long blast, but you shall not sound an alarm. And the sons of Aaron and the priests shall blow the trumpets, and the trumpets shall be to you for a perpetual statute throughout your generations. And when you go to war in your land against the adversary, so let me stop at verse 8, What we see there to this point are just these messages of how God wants the people to respond in either gathering or leaving. But notice now in verse 9, the promise of victory as Israel comes among her enemies. Verse 9, and when you go to war in your land against the adversary who oppresses you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets that you may be remembered before the Lord your God and you shall be saved. From your enemies. If it wasn't God, it would be very audacious. You're going to your land. You haven't been in for 400 years. But it's your land. Because I have given it to you according to the arrangement with Abraham and all that has taken place. And you will be saved from your enemies. God was Israel's warrior. He would not permit harm to come to her. And when Israel relied on her own strength in battle, she would lose battles that she should win. But when she relied on God's strength, she would win battles by every right she should have lost. I am your warrior who will go with you. God was anxious for Israel to walk in obedience as He displayed His glory to the nations in discipline of these who had become thoroughly corrupt in their sin and in blessing upon His people. This is what God intended. There's a second use of the trumpets, not only in war and in victory there, but verse 10, on the day of your gladness also. Not just when you go to war, but on the day of your gladness. That is, on the day of the Sabbaths, whatever they be. At your appointed feasts, at the beginning of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. They shall be a reminder of you before your God. I am the Lord your God. So there is, with this message of the trumpets, also a call to worship. And again... We cannot miss how close this hits to our own life and our own relationship with the Lord. We are a community of God's people whom He protects from the world's assaults to our faith and a community God calls together to worship in warm exaltation of His name. This is our life together. It looks very different than them in one sense, but it's really tracking down the same way. An attack upon us and our faith from the enemies of God and a worshiping of God in community together. So these trumpets announced God's will to His people. They clarified the direction He wanted them to take and called them then to worship. And so in a sense, for us, God's Word is the glory cloud pointing us along the path that He wants us to take And the preaching, teaching ministry of the church is that trumpet call that clarifies God's will and exhorts us to obey it. In a sense, Scripture is that big cloud leading ahead. God places within the lives of the church the trumpet call, the clarion call of voices that divulge that word and fine-tune the point of that word to our lives. I think we could rightly support this interpretation on the basis of, for instance, 1 Corinthians 14. I think this is where Paul's tracking there in part. But God graciously provides a coordinating relationship between His Word and the message of faithful teachers who clarify His message for His people. And this is why it's right 
for a church to be concerned about the orthodoxy of the messages and the lessons that are taught in her, to her. We are not free to trumpet whatever sound we wish. We are free only to express the will of our God. Now, no human being does that ideally. And believe me, as a once upon a time trumpet player, I know you can mess up the sound of a trumpet really easily. And certainly human voices are not the voice of God in one sense. But the voices in the church that sound from that, that, that Bible class of that young children's class, the classes throughout our VBS this week, to our adult classes, to what is taking place right here now, our task as a church is to sound the truth of God. It is not to invent a new way. It's not to make God's truth palatable to our culture. Our task is always and has ever been to sound His message. With all of our imperfections, that is our goal. That is how we should live. And those who picked up these trumpets to announce the Word of the Lord to His people to gather or to move out in sync with what the cloud was indicating. They were not free to come up with their own message. They were to announce this truth accurately. So God graciously provided this coordinating relationship between His will and the message of individuals blowing on these trumpets to send the message to all the camp, whether they were sleeping or preparing food in their tent or were looking at the cloud. Wherever they were, they could hear this sound. And they knew what God was saying. The third movement in this text is marching to conquest whatever the hardship. Following God's presence wherever He leads. Heeding God's call, whatever the message. And marching to conquest whatever the hardship. Verse 11. In the second year... In the second month, on the twentieth day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony. And if we're really tracking, I think our heart lifts right there. It's like, okay, we're moving now. It's time. We're heading out. We're journeying north to this promised land. The second year, that is just over a year after Israel's deliverance from Egypt, approximately 11 months here at Mount Sinai, but now they're moving. And the people, verse 12, of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai and the clouds settled down in the wilderness of Paran. That, Paran, that is the, that, 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 that's the, the whole journey right there. So we're, we're breaking camp and moving from Sinai to Paran in this segment. It's not saying they did that overnight, but that's the, that's the track right now that we are on. You remember these three theaters. Verse 13, they set out for the first time at the command of the Lord by Moses. The first time, that is, the first time organized as they are, chapters 1 and 2, in this initial stage of the journey to the promised land. Verse 14, the standard of the camp of the people of Judah set out first by their companies and over their company by Nashan, son of Amminadab, and over the company of the tribe of the people of Issachar, and then Zebulun, down through verse 16. And this should make some sense to us. Just to review with these graphics, the tabernacle is in the center, and there's a systematic, careful way that these tribes are arranged. I have them here on this graphic. On the right side, Judah, camp 1. Camp 2 on the south, Reuben. Camp 3, Ephraim and these three tribes, and then camp four on the north, Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. Arranged this way, also then the priests around the tabernacle, all was to journey out in a very systematic way. So camp one now starts to work its way out, and then camp two, as there is a second sound of the trumpet that indicates that second camp is now to move out. Now as we come to 
verse 17, we read that when the tabernacle was taken down, the sons of Gershon and the sons of Merari who carried the tabernacle, they set out. Fascinating thing here. This is new information to what we found in chapter 2, which is, is, is an ingenious way that the Pentateuch is put together. You can't go to one part of the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, you can't go to one part and get all the message in one place. You have to keep reading as narratives are filtered in and the laws are described. You've got to read it all in order to get it right. It's an ingenious way to make sure that Israel was reading the whole thing, not locking into the one section that said, how do we leave again? Well, you're learning one thing in chapter 2 and you're learning some more information here in chapter 10. You have to know the whole thing in order to work out the way that God wants. And what's introduced here is that the Levites in this plate will come, but that the tabernacle will come before. It will be inserted in here earlier, and so what would make perfect sense, this is um, a visual that cuts through the fabric that would have covered the tent, if you're not familiar with the picture. But the structure then is traveling with the people ahead of the furniture. I don't think we have to figure out why. It seemed pretty obvious. So that the structure can be put in place first as these massive numbers of people are journeying. And then when the furniture gets there, in the midst of the camps, it's placed in in the tent that's already erected and standing. So a very organized, systematic way of moving these people through the wilderness. So once uh, the Levites, what we saw in chapter 2, but we're learning that there's other insertions of the priests, and then working their way around to camp 3, and then ultimately to camp 4. So they will all follow around in single file, so to speak, as they journey throughout the wilderness. Verse 18 we see then the camp of Reuben setting out, as would make perfect sense, camp uh, to Simeon, verse 19, and Gad, verse 20. Then the Kohathites, the priests, carrying the holy things, and the tabernacle was set up before their arrival. There it is. We would have gathered that on our own, but he says it there. And the standard of the camp of the people of Ephraim, now then Manasseh, Benjamin, and the camp of Dan, verse 25, setting out by their companies with their leaders in their tribes, Asher and Naphtali concluding the line. This, verse 28, was the order of march of the people of Israel by their companies when they set out. So every time they moved, they moved in systematic order according to the command of God. This wasn't chaos. This was a systematic ordering and direction for them each step of the way. Now, we see them then breaking camp here and moving out, and what do you need along the way? You need a GPS system, right? So we look at the GPS system twofold. First of all is a man named Hobab, verse 29. Moses said to Hobab, the son of Ruel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law. I think Ruel and Jethro are two names for the same individual. Some debate on that, but I think that's the case. And he says what? Verse 29, We're setting out for the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us, and we will do good to you. For the Lord has promised good to Israel. But he said to him, Hobab, I will not go. I will depart to my own land and to my kindred. He said, please do not leave us. For you know where we should camp in the wilderness, and you will serve as eyes for us. And if you do go with us, whatever good the Lord will do to us, the same will we do to you. Two ideas here to grasp very briefly. First, why do they need Hobab? If they're following the glory cloud through the wilderness, why on earth do they need this guy to help them know where to camp? Aren't they supposed to camp where the cloud takes them? Well, think in big global terms, first of all. This is a probably a, a massive cloud taking them to a particular place, but there is a huge arrangement of the camps. And someone who knows where the valleys 
and perhaps the, the creeks, the dry creeks that would fill with water, or perhaps even wells, where to pasture flocks. Somebody who knows that, that's the details down below the cloud. And so what we find here is actually the way that God works providentially. He orders and He ordains, and we sweat the details. We labor hard. We work in the midst. They don't, it's not Israel just laying back saying, oh, God's leading us here. We go here and we don't do anything. God doesn't pick them up by the back of the neck and haul them around the wilderness. And He doesn't drop a map down for them to know exactly where to be. They have to use their ingenuity to camp where God wants them to camp. And so it is in our lives. God orders our lives. He providentially works and leads us and guides us, but we have to go to work in sync with His purposes. That's precisely, I think, what's happening here. He ordains the direction and we work our tails off. That's Hobab and his part. But the second thing I'd like you to note here, I, I, I hope as a Bible reader that when you hear Moses talking, you are clicking with Genesis chapter 12. What's happening there? Genesis 12, I will bless you and I will bless the nations through you. This is a beautiful invitation by Moses to this man saying, first, we need you as our GPS system in the wilderness. But secondly, if you will come in among us, the glory of God will pour out grace upon you. We see the blessing of Israel passing on to this Midianite. There are indications, though the text does not say so here, that he did go with them because his people, his clan, the Kenites, are found among the Israelites as they settle the land. That's all we got to go on. Why it doesn't say what he did here, I don't know, and maybe there's more to it than that. Maybe someone else took his place. But at any rate, we see the blessing of God passed on to those who identify with his people. Verse 33, then we see secondly the cloud. So there's Hobab taking them through. There's secondly, of course, the cloud. Verse 33, so they set out from the mount of the Lord three days' journey, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them three days' journey to seek out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day whenever they set out from the camp. Three days' journey doesn't mean it took them three days. In the way that they calculated distance, that meant a healthy man walking 15 miles a day. That's a three days journey. So 40, 45 miles is the distance they travel however long it took. But that would be called a three days journey. So we would say, we would think three days means it took three days. For them, it just meant that's how far you can walk in three days. I think it would have taken them a lot longer, very likely. But again, the idea here of the ark going before them. Now, does that mean it was in the front? Is this a new point to the text that the ark of the covenant, that box in the Holy of Holies, went in front of everyone? It might be literally, or it could just be figuratively. It went with them, ahead of them. Even though it was in the middle of the camp as it went out, it was the thing. It was the presence of the Lord among His people. At any rate, the Lord leads them there. And then we see thirdly here, a victory cry of worship in verses 35 and 36. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel, to the countless numbers of of Israel, or as some Hebrew texts have it, even Lord, you are the thousands of thousands among Israel. But whatever the case, there's a, a victory cry here by Moses. We are following God. He is taking us to victory. His presence is what matters here. He doesn't end each night saying, Wow, do we have a great army? He ends each night saying, We have a great God. And that God's presence among us is what makes all the difference. And so it is with us as a church. The message that we witness here is so simple, its significance can easily miss us. But the point is that God loves His people. He provides direction for us because He loves us. 
And I say to each of you, but particularly to those who have come to a place of saving faith in Jesus, He will never ask you to do what is for your harm. He is never going to lay out a path that will injure you and harm your soul. I am not saying that He will always take you on a path that's easy. He will take you through the valley of the shadow of death. He's going to take Israel through a whole heap of trouble. But He will never lead you to harm. We get so mixed up there because there are those that think that any negative thing, any trial, any heartache is an indication that God's not leading us. There are others who say, no, I know God is leading me through this valley of the shadow of death, through this difficulty and heartache, and say He doesn't care. We have to bring these together as Israel must bring these together. God is going to lead His people through hard times. We're praying here as a church today for this young woman in her 20s who gets laid flat by meningitis, doesn't know who she is, not conscious. We're thankful for how God's answering that prayer, but that's not because she's walking in disobedience. That's not because God sovereignly has forgotten to care for His child. God takes us through hard times. We're praying. How do you handle it? I mean, we're praying for a family that's got four little children and the third one, two years of age, is gone. The heartache of knowing that he was at a birthday party and we lost sight of him and he's dead. There are very hard, hard places in the wilderness. It does not mean God has abandoned us. It does not mean He is not sovereign on His throne. It does mean that we must follow Him. Not with grumbling, not with questioning, not in bitterness, but in faith. Knowing that we never wander aimlessly. We don't know always where God is taking us day by day. But our final destiny is clearly determined. And that's the thing we see here with Israel. We're on the south side here heading north. We know where we're going. God has promised us there a land that is flowing with milk and honey. It is a place of rest. It is a place of peace. It is a place that has been prepared for us. They have no idea what's on the journey between. And it's a lot of heartache. It's a lot of darkness and difficulty and attack. And so it is with us. But this is our distinct heritage in this waking, wandering, restless world that we as the followers of Christ are the followers of Christ. He's going to go with you, Christian, every step of the way. He walked through the valley of Gethsemane. He walked through the valley of Calvary. And He came out on the other side, risen and conquering and reigning and coming again. If you're in Him, you've come to saving faith in His death in your place to pay the penalty of your sin, to be that sacrificial lamb that atones for sin. If you have come to trust in His resurrection power, you are indeed following Him. Your identity is taken up with Him. He's going to get you home. We'll get to this promised land. And for those that have not come to know Christ in that way, This is our belief as a church. This is what the Bible teaches. I make no apology for it. It's the facts. There was one cloud. 
one cloud. There weren't a multiplicity of clouds all leading to the same place. And there weren't a multiplicity of clouds all leading to different places. There was one cloud. And Jesus says in the book where it says that he tabernacled among us and called his followers to follow him, he also said, 14.6 of John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's one way to follow, and that is the way of Christ. That way, then, is to take up the vision of the redeemed. To know that I live my life following Jesus. That's to take up the vision, dads, as you lead your homes, to say we are a home that follows Jesus. I can't make my children's hearts be something. We can't control from the outside, but we can say here where I'm the father, where I have this calling from God, we as parents, husband and wife, this is a place where Christ is revered. It is a place, this church, where Christ is to be revered. We say there is one name by which we must be saved. One glory now to follow all the way home. And we rejoice to say it. And in obedience to this Christ, we go into all the world in His authority to proclaim His truth, to make disciples, to baptize those who so respond, and to teach them everything that God has said. Everything that Jesus has commanded, directed, taught, and lived. All of it we proclaim as a church. We sound the trumpet of His Word. As we have this week with, I don't know, 150 to 200 children, depending on how many individuals were in that number, we're sounding the trumpet of Christ crucified and risen. Here in our services, in our classes, wherever we speak, we speak the trumpet call of Christ crucified and risen. And may we speak it in obedience to Him as we head out into this world this week. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, we dedicate ourselves to this calling. We thank You for Your mercies to us in Christ. I pray for those who know Jesus that we'd walk with You in faithfulness. I pray for those who know not Christ that You would draw them to Yourself. May we leave this place today, every one of us, asking the question, where am I headed? Who is leading me? Do I live my life calibrated to the command of God or do I do my own thing in my own way? God, call us to see this. Help us to discern where we stand. And may we rejoice in Christ crucified, risen, and leading us all the way home. In His name we pray. Amen.